Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nika Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses, how you can build businesses and wealth that would outlive the founder and have sustained impacts not only over time, but also over space. And we have these conversations in an environment of authenticity, curiosity, and vulnerability. This week, I was joined by Dr. Latanya White, who is just an incredible lady. She's an inclusive scholar practitioner and works at the intersection of racial equity and entrepreneurship curriculum design. She also has developed her expertise in the intersection of the racial wealth gap and black entrepreneurship through her graduate studies at Antioch University's Graduate School of Leadership and Change. As a result of her doctoral research on intergenerational wealth transfer and black business families, Dr. White has developed a model that specifically addresses the ancestral narrative and lived experience of black entrepreneurs using a lens of racial equity. Gosh, this conversation was juicy. It was loaded. I enjoyed my my time with Dr. Latanya White and I learned so, so much that I'd encourage you to tune in enjoy and share the love, share this episode with a friend, someone that you know is keen on learning about legacy wealth and legacy businesses. Enjoy. Hello, Dr. Latanya. I am so excited to have you here on The Connected Generation. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm trying to contain my excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. This is going to be so good. You are this multifaceted amazing woman. You're an expert in belonging, racial equity, entrepreneurship. You're an academic. How did you get here? Wow, what a long winding journey. (laughs) (laughs) As often these things happen. Um, So I own a bartending business and I was asked 11, 12 years ago, I was asked to be a guest lecturer in an entrepreneurship course at my alma mater. And Mm. from the feedback, you know, that I guess the students had and they passed along to the professor who passed it along to the department chair and the decision makers, um, I was asked if I'd like to teach the entrepreneurship course. And, you know, a true entrepreneurship said, I'll figure it out as I go. I just need to stay one step ahead of the students, right? (laughs) So... That um that was eleven years ago that I started teaching entrepreneurship. But about five years in, I did I did come to this realization that there were not enough students. At least I thought there were not enough students enrolled in this course at mm. a university with ten nine thousand students. I would usually only get about ten or twelve students. Mm. to enroll in this entrepreneurship course at a historically black college. Mm. And I did some due diligence and learned that there was a prerequisite course that students would be required to take in order to be eligible to take Mm. this elective course. And that prerequisite was only eligible for two majors, business students and communication students. Mm. 
And that's where I saw like the hang up, you know, so that there was a built in barrier to getting access to this course and had some conversations, maybe some heated conversations (laughs) (laughs) about how to make the course uh, more accessible. And just from a political standpoint, being at a publicly funded historically black college, it just wasn't in the cards at the time. I, I think I was just a little bit ahead of my time advocating for making access to entrepreneurship education easier. Mm-hmm. And so I think I ended up in my graduate program just to prove a point, right? Just to be able to say, well, these are the empirical reasons why access to entrepreneurship education should be easier. Um, when we were having the conversation, I was just so emotionally involved in it. Like I know now in retrospect that they couldn't hear me because I was not coming to the table with logic. It was pure. Mm. And um, I got, I, I enrolled in the doctoral program. I was accepted. Um, and I remember my personal statement really focusing on, you know, um, American Express had just issued a report. This was in 2016 that black women were the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in America. Mm. And I remember, you know, going to these association meetings and different conferences, and I still would find myself one of very few black women. And I was like, well, where are they? <laughs> because if they're the fastest growing group, then I should be seeing a lot more people that look like me in these spaces. And um, as I got into the first year of my program, we really focused on identity construction. And that's where I began down this rabbit hole around asking the question, well, how do Black entrepreneurs construct their identity? How do we get to a place mm-hmm. where we claim right, that we are an entrepreneur? Because I'm surrounded by the most creative, most resourceful, most innovative people who do not see themselves as entrepreneurs. So that led me further down the research rabbit hole and actually landed at this place that looked at um, the strategic position of business families to transfer wealth. And a Mm. part of that strategy was seeing themselves, like having the identity of Mm. being the founder of what's called an entrepreneurial dynasty, where Mm. this business, this wealth is being controlled, not just owned, but controlled in the family for three consecutive generations. So that's, that's an 11 year, very winding path that put me in front of you and got us connected. And I'm so, so grateful. Oh, I'm so grateful too. I feel like there's so much you've already kind of shared that I'd love to unpack a little bit more. You said key in the work you're doing is this concept of identity. And quite often a lot of people, Black people don't see themselves as entrepreneurs. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Why do you think that is? What, what's the barrier? What's the resistance? What's the friction there to embrace that identity? Wow, such a deep question. And I, I did explore it a bit in my dissertation research. So I'll back my way into, into mm-hmm. responding. I wanted to study Black 
business dynasties. I wanted to study the Black families that had passed down their wealth or passed down their businesses for three consecutive generations. But as you might imagine, due to structural racism and historic oppression, there were so few hmm. Black business dynasties that the sample size, it, it wasn't statistically significant enough for me to conduct my research. So I had to kind of reformulate the research question and ask, well, what about people who may want to start a, a, a dynasty, maybe the first generation founders? And so that research question and the eligibility process, now I'm looking for Black entrepreneurs who are first generation mm. entrepreneurs. And between my practice study and my major study, there are 10 Black entrepreneurs in the beauty industry that had checked the box that said they were first generation entrepreneurs. But in our discussions, in the interview, I would hear, well, my aunt had, or my mom did this and my dad had. And I'm like, but you said you were first generation. First generation. They didn't identify as having inherited um, any knowledge. So it wasn't even about assets. It wasn't about money. It was they hadn't they they were starting from scratch and they felt so isolated. So kind of to hmm. your question, how does this this role of identity construction and even more identity claiming, how does that happen? And it comes a lot from how empowered you feel, you know, what's your level of confidence or self-efficacy? Like how much do you believe about your own ability to be successful mm. as an entrepreneur? And that informs so much about the risks that are taken in Black entrepreneurial ecosystems. That is powerful. How much you believe in your, your personal um, competence, so to speak, to make it work. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And amongst the first gen um, business owners that you interviewed and you discovered that actually these are multi-generational business owners, <laughs> what were the commonalities amongst them? Um, mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Wow. So, so the, the methodology I studied was phenomenology, which is really looking for the pattern among a lived experience. So I'm looking at these commonalities um, in the lived experience of first generation black entrepreneurs. And without question, they each, I'm actually getting goosebumps thinking about it. They mm. each were driven by this idea that they were going to create something better for mm. their nieces, their godchildren, their neighbors, their community. And so this is this idea of generativity um, and the theory of generativity is basically this narrative mm. that we tell ourselves about who we are and, and how we're going to show up in the world, what we're going to do for others, but others down the line. So mm. each of them had this, this innate sense of self that they may not be the, the beneficiary of their own work, but that they were making these sacrifices for, for lack of a better term, for people that they may not ever even meet in their lifetimes. And they, each one of them were driven by that. Powerful. That's powerful. And I guess 
My question to you, based on the extensive experience you have in this space, is that motive sufficient to get them to cross and pass over the business yep. and the assets, not just knowledge, not just the intangible, but the tangible? Unfortunately, it isn't. Um, one of the things that I found so interesting, I, I, I think I've always been contrarian just because I take, I tend to take a different perspective. So while there are, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of celebration around this concept and this idea of generational wealth, mm. dynastic wealth is actually much more intentional. And in these families that I studied, the Rockefeller family, the Walton family, um, the Mars family, there is literally a blueprint for how they do this. And one of those aspects is they're cultivating and concentrating their collective efforts mm -hmm. to create five forms of wealth. Whereas generational wealth typically is only focused on that one financial. And, and let's be clear, there will be no dynasty without financial wealth, but there's mm -hmm. also spiritual wealth. There's mm -hmm. also this conversation around who are we as a family? What's our family identity? Mm -hmm. And so the generative nature is not enough without these other strategic um, platforms and approaches to bringing the, as many members of the family who are willing to participate, bringing them along and documenting the process, having these family values that are like on paper that go into the family constitution to build the family trust. And then we're looking at relational wealth and intellectual wealth and, and human, um, this wealth of knowledge. So it's not just this desire to have something and create something better. There's strategy and action that goes along with it. You said it so beautifully. Often when I talk to people about the work that I do in this space, mm -hmm. they will say financial planners address that, tax planners address that, trust companies address that, but it doesn't. And you've just given me language that I didn't have before in the distinction between generational wealth and dynastic families. Now, generational wealth is just passing the financial assets over the financial wealth, but dynastic family is thinking more collectively and the poorly capital that's available of the family. And also when often the, the focus is so much on generational wealth, it's about preparing the assets for the children and the next generation, not preparing the children for the assets. Exactly. Exactly. Because the assets can actually destroy the children mm -hmm. or the children can end up destroying the assets, mm -hmm. right? So I love what you're saying. You've now brought up this identity piece for the third time. So I'd love for you to <laughs> unpack this. Obviously, it's so important. Obviously. Yes. Yes. <laughs> tell me more. Um, identity as an individual, as an entrepreneur, you're a first gen. Um, and then identity as the family, at what point do you start thinking of, we are a collective unit and what is our collective identity? Oh my goodness. And it's such a great question because, so the Center for Creative Leadership, they actually have this um, identity mapping tool. And if you think of a bullseye um, with three concentric circles, it, these are these three layers of our identity. 
And on the outer ring, it's our given identity. So for the most part, it's the things that people can see about you. So you can't tell, but I'm some people like to say I'm almost six feet tall. So if, wow. if we meet in person, <laughs> people are typically like, you're so much taller than, than you look on Zoom, right? But, <laughs> but so I'm tall, a tall African-American female, oldest of two. So those are some of the given identity characteristics about me. And that's on the outer ring. So we can also think about society, right? And the, and the collective. Um, that middle ring are these, these affinities. So sometimes it's the things that we consciously or subconsciously choose, like our profession, we choose mm -hmm. our partners, we choose our college and things of that nature. Um, that core piece, that circle in the dead center, that's our core identity. And that's where we can look at the entrepreneur themselves and their role in the family. And that core identity is, this is so important for Black entrepreneurs and Black leaders in general, mm. because we find ourselves sometimes having to, what they call code switch, yeah. where our inflection is different or, you know, the, the tone that we use is different, but the core of our being, the thing that drives us, this part of our identity that does not change, no matter mm -hmm. the circumstance or situation, that's the core identity. And this is so key for Black entrepreneurs in particular, because we bring that identity into how we operate the business. And so when you're not connected to your mm. core identity, your business practices, your business operations, they will blow like the wind, right? There mm. is not that strong foundation. So when markets fluctuate, then who are you? How do, Your brand changes, right? Your promise. Mm change, the way you engage with your customers change if you're not connected to your core identity. And so that translates even further to dynastic wealth building and what it means for the family, because as new children and new partners are married into the family, without that core family identity, this is who we are. This is who mm. you're marrying into mm. if you so choose to. <laughs> Um, and, and for younger generations, rising generations, as they say, one thing that we found in my family was important to establish this, this family identity and these core values so that those children know who they are. Mm. And as they get older and they're consuming more and more media, they aren't being told by society who they are. They go into the world knowing who they are. And so that's the importance of especially knowing the core identity. Powerful. <laughs> Good grief. Powerful. And here I am. You've just enlightened my brain to a whole, like, I would never have thought about this to this extent. Obviously, mm -hmm. it, it was important, but I didn't realize it was so important. And as you were talking, and you are talking about our core identities as black entrepreneurs is so critical. Quite often we code switch. Yes. And um, Brene Brown is one of my greatest heroes. Um, she, mm, she wrote Atlas of the Heart mm -hmm. last year. And it, so she basically goes through different emotions and explaining what they are. Her, 
her thinking is that giving language to being able to describe our emotions makes us more emotionally intelligent. And I remember reading the page on self-betrayal. And I was stuck there for a few days. I was stuck there. Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're talking about is that at the core, if we don't know who we are, we are, and we are acting inconsistently with who we are, we are betraying ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then if we don't know who we are as individuals, how can we then have a collective identity? Yes. That Absolutely. moves with the wind. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That that is powerful. That is powerful. Thank you. And I wonder, do you have examples, whether positive or negative, of people, um, whether in your study or just anecdotally, um, knowing your identity and what it, what it mm-hmm. does for you in your business? Oh, wow. Um, so I'll, I can use myself as an example because... The first year of my doctoral program, we did this exercise. So I was accepted to the program in July of 2017. We did this exercise in November of 2017. And I was in a full on identity crisis through the holidays and probably until the spring of the next year. Because what I recognized or what I finally acknowledged about who I am was that I require these these really deep, authentic experiences. And so I'm in, in these classrooms full of millennial students and Generation Z students, and I wanted to give so much. But my students were like, oh, you know, I'm just here. <laughs> I just need the credit. Like, we don't have to do, <laughs> we don't have to do all those things. Um, but who I showed up, how I showed up rather in the classroom is certainly an extension of my brand as a consultant and as a coach. And so I realized that there are going to be prospective clients that that need me or need the expertise and the solutions that I offer, but were mm. not at an emotional depth to connect at, at a really kind of deep level. So that process in the classroom really showed me how I have to filter Because also as an introvert, the wanting the deep engagements and connections, it still drains me, but I love it. Mm. So it helped me learn how to filter. It helped me learn that there is a baseline that everyone needs and Mm. easy to provide. So what I would do for students, I was like, hey, here's a checklist. This is what we're going to, this is what you're going to accomplish by the end of this class. And I literally put in the syllabus for those students who want a deeper analysis, who want to go deeper in their understanding about entrepreneurship. Here is um, my calendar and then we can get on Zoom. And I found that I've been in touch with students for years by filtering and making Mm. sure that I'm available for those who want to go deeper without pressing upon others who don't. And so I bring that into how I coach and how I consult and provide strategic strategic advising, because now I'm more aware, like I can pick up on the energy and the idea that there's a baseline we want and, you know, we can stop there where there are also those clients um, that really want to spend more time unpacking things. Mm. 
powerful. I love that example. Thank you for sharing you. that. Um, you spoke about the distinction between dynastic families and generational wealth and dynastic families work on more than just their financial wealth. They work on human wealth and, you know, relational wealth, et cetera. Can you just explain more about that concept and what Absolutely. those types of wealth are? Mm. Absolutely. Uh, so spiritual, we, of course, as the foundation to that dynastic wealth is that financial wealth. And my experience in the classroom and as a certified business analyst, I've I've honed the skills to to coach people through the technical aspect of how to become profitable in business and, you know, seeking certifications we were talking about earlier. So that's the financial wealth. That's the foundation. But from there, uh, we go into this spiritual wealth. And this is it's not tied to religion, per se. Mm -hmm. Thank you it's, for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that was, you know, that was key, right? Because that can exclude people in a lot of, of cases. Mm -hmm. But the concept of spiritual wealth is really around this idea that there is something greater to work towards. And so now we kind of loop back in this idea about generativity. There is mm. something or someone or others that we are working to be in service to. And the the core around spiritual wealth is the identity piece again. Who are we? What are our core values? Who do we say we are? Spiritual wealth is important because it really gives this next step into human and, and recording the wealth of knowledge. Mm. So the examples that we've been using, my family and I, we've been working through this for the past two years. So now that we've addressed and gotten some idea about our core values, now we're, we can get into capturing the oral history. Like mm. who has this, this skill set? Who knew you were knowledgeable about these things? And so those passions, skills, and abilities become everyone's knowledge or now everyone in the family has access to it. It's not mm. just the two close cousins know that this one cousin can do this thing. Now everyone has an idea and can tap into it. This is key because this next level of wealth, so financial wealth, spiritual wealth, the wealth of knowledge, investing in intellectual wealth. So now we know that you love doing things with your hands. As a family, we are going to invest in you developing mastery. Maybe we'll pay for you to go through the general contractor's class so mm -hmm. that you can get a contractor's license, which will in turn create more financial wealth for mm -hmm. this family. So none of them work without the other. And that last form of wealth, relational wealth, that's really that social capital. That's how do my relationships in my network, how can I bring others with me? Not just mention your name or not just, you know, have a seat for you at the table. I'm going to escort you into the room. I'm going to be there to help build that introduction so that you have that self-efficacy and you are comfortable enough to carry on this relationship on your own. So knowing what you're good at, 
then helping you develop mastery in that thing. And then, of course, storing you into other opportunities to build your own social capital. And eventually it does also come back to the family and to the communities that we live in. Wow. Um, I've, I've heard poly capital explained several times, but I see your lens of equity and inclusion mm-hmm. in the way you explain that, particularly in the last example. I would never have thought about it in that way. But when I think through mm-hmm. um, people within my network, black entrepreneurs that we collaborate, this is precisely what we do. It's not just... Yes. Um, it's it's deeper than just like you said just connecting latanya and jury it's really ensuring that you are at the table you're benefiting is there any other way i can be supportive and it's it's really really powerful um i wanted to ask you we spoke a little bit about in your study you sought to interview these dynastic families and you struggled to find a statistic statistically um significant sample within the community and so you kind of pivoted to look at the first generation and for obvious reasons it's because of historical factors Mm -hmm. systemic racism etc i wanted your thoughts on the future of black wealth Mm -hmm. given everything that's at play right now um Mm -hmm. there's a raised consciousness um, amongst different communities as to the systemic barriers that we do face And there's also a raised consciousness in terms of information and education within the community. How do you see the future of wealth and the future of dynastic families within the community? I think that's where I know for sure that's where people like you with your expertise come in and really helping families because there there are tons of pathways to wealth. There's a new black millionaire popping up like every day and thank God for it. But there is still a gap. There is Mm. still a chasm that we haven't yet built a bridge across. And that Mm. is protecting that wealth. Um, In some cases, Mm. it may be a matter of, are we economically literate enough to know what to do with the money and not just spending it, but making it make more money. So that's that's one one place. The other place is how do we protect it? How do we minimize the tax liability? How do we ensure that there isn't a gift tax that the next generation is going to have to pay? How do we minimize those things as Black families? And as I read through, um, I, I want to say the Institute for Policy Studies, that's really where I I was introduced to this idea of entrepreneurial dynasties. They have a report titled um, Billionaire Bonanzas. And um, as I came across this article from the Institute for Policy Studies on Billionaire Bonanzas, this is where I was introduced to the concept of entrepreneurial dynasties. And they talked about the Rockefeller family, the same families that I ended up studying. But one of their recommendations was to change the tax laws such that dynastic families essentially could not perpetuate. And, mm. and I'm saying, wait, we're, we are just, we don't even know about this yet. And now it's going away. And that was one of the the 
heartbreaking things that I came across. It's like, yes, it was a problem. And now they have, they're proposing a solution, but could it be that this solution could say for dynasties <laughs> that are already been in existence as opposed to emerging dynasties? But the future of Black wealth is really going to depend on how well we protect the wealth such that we control it within our families and that we are teaching these future generations not only how we made the money, but how to protect it themselves and how to create more. Powerful. You know, this is like so timely. I was essentially posed the same kind of question <laughs> earlier this month. And that was okay. one of, um, you help families in preserving wealth and accumulating wealth across generations. Don't you think that is to some extent unethical because you're worsening Wow. Yeah, wealth inequality in society. So as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And I was like, that took me aback. And I think I, we're back to this lens of inclusivity and equity. Um, mm -hmm. So looking through the lens of supposed privilege, maybe that may be the case, but even then it's arguable. But, looking, but on the other hand, mm -hmm. looking through the lens of we have a context of generational poverty, and this is absolutely mission critical to set our current relatives and future descendants free from this plague of poverty. And as people and families get wealthier, communities benefit. It's not, it's not just about that founder that has his billions. And he's, there's this underlying connotation that people of wealth are reckless, greedy, unethical, wicked, mm -hmm. and um, in society. And I think a lot of that needs challenging. And what you're saying about your, your, when you did the study and this concept of generativity, where we're working towards something greater, mm -hmm. we're working towards, we're in service of communities, we're in service of future generations, we're making sacrifices for their good. I almost feel that this message needs to be, you know, be shouted from the mountaintops because people still make this <laughs> connection between wealth and evil. And it's very dangerous mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I absolutely, absolutely agree. And I think, so the, the conversations around wealth, money and racism they're very hard to have because mm. unfortunately, so white guilt is real, you know? Um, mm. So we're in, in rooms and as I'm doing keynote um, and roundtable facilitation, literally have to open up with, this is not to villainize anyone. Mm. This is to mm. simply acknowledge how we got here and mm. how our historic, our collective history impacts the economic mobility of Black people today. And I literally have found that there is a, a connection, anecdotal, I hadn't studied it in an empirical setting, an anecdotal connection between Plessy versus Ferguson from 1896 that legalized racial segregation and the lack of social capital that Black entrepreneurs have in 2022. 
And it, it mm. is not, again, to your point, it's not to say because you are wealthy, you are wicked, but mm. because you have privilege, you have, there is possibility. Powerful. On that point on social capital, because it's something I'm very passionate about, as emerging wealth owners, <laughs> emerging entrepreneurs, what steps and practical tips would you give for business owners? How can they be intentional about building and deepening and nurturing their social capital? Such a great question. Um, I'm so excited. I actually work with the Executive Leadership Council on an article that addressed this idea of social capital in the corporate space. And there are mentor programs and affiliate groups and entrepreneur mm. resource groups and all of those things, right? But there is still always someone who does not, who is not even aware of these opportunities. So one of the things that I've witnessed and I've observed and I, I tend to recommend is to do your best to bring someone with you. They may not be familiar with it. They may not feel polished enough, but if they are not even introduced to these spaces, then they'll never have that inner tension, that, that desire to, to level up for lack of a better term. And so it's this opportunity to create a growth mindset experience. I don't have this privilege because I was born into it. I have this access because I was curious enough to explore it. And, and to mm. your point, how can we be intentional? Bring someone with you. If you're going to a networking event, invite a friend. Bring two, as a matter of fact. Um, I think that really helps to distribute the, the work that's going to be required for the collective economic advancement of Black families and Black communities. Powerful. On that, the last statement you just made, what do you think is the work required for the collective advancement? Mm. Wow. It's heavy. I know yeah. that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> it it kind of goes back to where we started with identity. Um, I think those institutions and organizations that are embedded in how Black identity is constructed, school, church, and home. Those are literally the places where intentionally leaders, thought leaders, innovators have to be in those spaces having these conversations. The church, the Black church may not feel like they have a role in general identity construction. They're making sure that you know who Christ is and they, uh, you know, that's what I think the black church thinks their only role is right mm. now. But mm. if we are having more conversations in these institutions where my identity is constructed as a black person at mm. school, especially in title one schools. Um, and so title one schools are federally, they're defined at the federal level as having at least 40% of their students from low to middle income families, mm -hmm. typically lower, closer to the poverty line. But we know how this works. Those neighborhoods have a low tax base. 
which mm. means they get lower amounts of funding from the state side. So they're under-resourced. Mm. Then we have to find a way into the homes. And that might be through public housing, housing and urban development. They have the family self-sufficiency program. And there's an easy way to incorporate who are you as a wealth builder into how you save money. It's not mm. just spend less than you make. It's about who do you see yourself as? So there are these institutions where there's an opportunity to do the work, to have the conversations around identity and its relationship to wealth and the longer term goal of generative and dynastic wealth. Natanya, oh my gosh. Thank you. You've been a treasure. Like this is so rich and so beautiful to hear. And it's like I said, when we, we met, you're literally a godsend. I've been looking for this data for like the last five years. Um, and it's great to have you as a resource that have actually spent time doing the work, um, doing the research and being able to translate that into practical steps that business mm -hmm. owners can take in their dynastic journey. Um, mm -hmm. How can folks get in touch with you? What are you working on? You know, how can they, if they want to get hold of you, how best can they do that? Uh, well, I should probably start being more active on Twitter. Literally, someone just told me this yesterday. She's like, why can't I find you on social media? I'm like, <laughs> I've been writing a dissertation. What do you want from me? <laughs> but um, meet Dr. White on all socials. Meet Dr. White, Dr. White on all social platforms. Um, and one thing I'm working on is really studying and making sure that I understand the federal procurement and certification process. So maybe mm -hmm. um, in the show notes, we, we can link to that Black Enterprise article. There's a... a Black woman-owned firm that recently secured a $28 million contract from the federal government. And wow. she is quoted in that article saying that government contracts are our reparations. Mm. So that that is what I've been studying. I always want to be as good a student as I wanted in my classroom. So I've been really studying that and I'm happy to answer any questions and share more about that certification and that procurement process because there are million dollar opportunities out there mm -hmm. that we are not tapped into again because no one had taken them with us. So through the Connected Generation podcast, we are taking all your listeners with us into this federal procurement space. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I need to listen to it over and over again. There's so much in there that I need to digest on. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Goodness, I loved that conversation. Gosh, where do we start? Um, so many things jumped out at me. The first was um, how Latanya kept on emphasizing the importance of how identity is a key part of one's 
intergenerational journey, so to speak, and her talking about not just focusing on the tangible parts of wealth, but also the intangible, which, as you probably know if you listen to this podcast, she's speaking exactly in my language. Um, I thoroughly do believe that wealth is beyond just tangible assets. There's a lot that we can do, both as potential inheritors and also as potential um, wealth builders in focusing on the intangible parts of our wealth, looking at things like our collective history, our collective knowledge, our collective intelligence, and as she said, also focusing not just on the financial aspects, but also the non-financial aspects. Another part of the conversation that I really, really loved, but I wish we'd actually spent a little bit more time talking about was this concept of generativity and how in her studies she found that a lot of um, these wealth builders were really driven by the idea that they were creating something better for their family or for their community that was very much founded on this idea of sacrifice. And I think this is so counter-cultural in terms of the way wealth builders, wealth owners, multi-generational families are looked at by the media. Quite often there's a connotation of one of exploitation of excessive greed and accumulation without appreciating that actually the financial capital, the success, so to speak, is a byproduct of often this kind of servant leadership, this concept of being sacrificial and trying to bring value to wider stakeholders beyond that of the shareholders and the byproduct is said wealth, right? So I really love that, um, giving language to that and talking about generativity and how it's really about, it's, it's really more about stakeholders than shareholders, right? Lastly, but not least, I loved when she talked about this distinction between dynastic families and families that build generational wealth and how and we need to be pursuing the former, not the latter, right? Where dynastic families focus on not just the accumulation of financial wealth, but they also think about other sources of wealth like knowledge capital, spiritual capital, human capital, social capital. And in doing so, they're very intentional about essentially working on the business of family, as I like to talk about it, Um, thinking through the governance, thinking through the documentation and focusing on that. And on her website, Dr. White says, dynastic wealth is your very birthright. And I love that. I think that quite often when we're talking, particularly within the, the Black community, there's a focus on this generational wealth piece, which focuses on very tactile, very technical elements of building financial wealth. Um, But there needs to be a wider, broader conversation on if you're a first generation wealth creator, you won't be able to reach this dynastic status until you're focused on the non-financial elements, working on the business of family and so on and so forth. So I love, love, love that. And I talk a lot in my book, Lifetime to Legacy, on other forms of capital beyond just financial capital and how we really need to be thinking as businesses of family businesses, enterprising families, of what's our secret source. And often our secret source is made up of these different forms of capital beyond just financial capital. What has gotten us to where we are and then what source 
do we need to get us to where we need to be going towards? So if you'd like to learn more and read more upon that, um, you want to check out my book, Lifetime to Legacy, and it's available on Amazon and the link is in the show notes. Also, I talk a lot about in the book how we need to start getting organized as families and starting to work on this business or family, not just working on the family business, right? Um, And in there, I talk a lot about how you can start having these conversations to come together collectively and envision what is our future, to start collaborating in a more effective way and start communicating in an impactful way as well. So you want to check that out. Um, Like I said, it's available on Amazon and yeah, you can find your copy. um, You can get a copy of the book on there. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless you.